This is the Studio Alchemy Podcast, episode 109, an interview with sex writer Jara Brown. Our quote of the day was said by Oscar Wilde. The truth is rarely pure and never simple. <laughs> Hello, everyone. The purpose of this podcast is to explore creative ways to transform our lives using the artistic process. Alchemy was the ancient study of changing materials from one thing into another, and we all do this every day. Every choice you are making is transforming our world. On this podcast, we hunt for the wise balance between accepting what is and taking empowered action. My name is Adi Hirshton. I am an artist. I sign my paintings with the name Vita. I teach art classes and have written a few books, including my new book, The Alchemy of Symbols. To find out more about my projects, classes, and to sign up for my art newsletter, I invite you to go to my website, studioalchemy.art. And now for our topic of the day. Today I have a wonderful, special guest for you, Jara Brown. Uh, Jara Brown was my friend back when I lived in Bloomington, Indiana, many, many years ago. So I guess, oh. It's been 12 to 15 years ago um, when I lived there. And so uh, it's, it's been wonderful to suddenly reconnect with Jara. And they had me on their podcast that's called the Radical Soul Podcast. And we did an exchange. So I interviewed them as well. So Jara is a queer, non-binary freelance writer focusing on sexuality, spirituality, and social justice topics. And to find out more about Jara, you want to go to jarabrown.com. And now for my interview with Jara. My old friend Jara Brown, welcome to the show. <laughs> Thanks for having me. All right, we'll start in on our first question. Okay. What is the story of how you became a writer? I think I was always a writer. Um, I remember, you know, writing quote unquote books when I was very young. I don't know, like maybe first grade. So I think that it's probably a draw that just like some people have. But I think I, I grew up in a family that really valued literature. So that was a big part of it. And um, yeah, so as a pastor's kid, I, I grew up in a family that valued storytelling. Um, but I think it makes me, the question just makes me think like, what does it mean to be a writer? And there was an interesting piece in the Wall Street Journal um, from a writer who like questioned what it means to make it um, as someone who like had books out and the, the person that wrote this, but like, also had a full-time job people were always thinking of their like their writing as a hobby or a side gig when to them it was so much a part of their identity and their values and and I relate to that so much like to me being a writer means having this calling and a and a drive to put certain things out in the world and to participate in the world in a very particular way. And I take that, uh, 
I take that as a as a huge motivator for the choices I make in my life. So when I think about becoming a writer, I think it's a it's a calling that chose me as much as I chose it. And I, I don't know if I ever became a writer or as much as I stepped into um the the choice of making it a primary part of how I live. Mm, nice. Nice. Do you feel yeah. that way about art or? Yeah. Oh man. Um, yeah, it's, it's definitely always been there uh, as a form of self-expression and it's most importantly self-expression that if I make money selling some of them, that's great. Yeah. And I've waved in and out of how much of my income is based on the sales of my paintings. Um, and I don't ever want to constrict my creations to just be producing things I think will sell. I mean, you can do that a little bit and that can be fun, but that just sort of grates on you after a while. And it's kind of like, well, is this any different than it, you know, any other cog in the wheel uh, mm. job if you're just producing to produce and there's not a um a, a bigger more meaningful drive behind it yeah yeah mm -hmm. yeah okay so and so much of your writing is about sexuality fun right and uh spirituality too and so i'm curious to you how these two topics came up and why that's what you've specialized in and if there's a connection between the two, I certainly see, a, you know, the, a sacred sexuality, uh, mm -hmm. spirituality um, potential that would be, you know, wonderful to write about. Um, so, yeah, your thoughts on that? Yeah. So I think, I mean, spirituality, it's much easier to see this visible trail. <laughs> Why it became important to me are the roots. At, once again, as a pastor's kid, like just, it was such a huge part of the identity of my family that it became there there was no way it wasn't going to be important to me but sexuality just is this unknown mysterious thing and I know you listened to my podcast with Tristan Taramino where I asked her the same thing like why why is it that some people grow up to be like obsessed and fascinated with the environment or sea turtles or you know like mm. cosmology when some of us are like no we're just gonna think about sex again and I don't know you know I don't know mm. if it's like there was a particular moment in my childhood that like triggered this obsession or if it was just by chance or if it's genetic so I think because both things have been so important to me, then it just made sense that the connections between them would be where I focus, especially in a society or a culture that really doesn't like connecting the two. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm curious if there's anything about well I know there are but uh, like anything about sexuality or spirituality that's really changed radically your, your title of your podcast is radical soul but like 
what radically changed for you that might have prompted some of that need for discussion on it? Um, I think, I mean, it's been evolving for so long that I talk a lot about how I wasn't able to own my own queerness until I could justify that it was okay with God. And then when I justified that it was okay with God, then my idea of God changed and then my idea of queerness changed. And it just became this tumbleweed, you know, that kept evolving. So, um, and I really gravitate to thinkers who, whose queerness informs their spiritual lens and like queerness becomes its own spiritual lens and its own value system. And I, I think, I think that's been true to me that like queerness has evolved so much to be less about who I'm attracted to or who I date and much more about like how I see the world and because I see the world as this having like spiritual components woven in, then my queer, my spirituality is queerness as is queer as well. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny. Something about what you said uh, a minute ago, you said like, Oh, you know, maybe there's a biological reason you know, some people might be more obsessed with sex than others. And, you know, I'm, I'm a nonconformist myself and have strived to, in the past 15 years, be like as honest and open about my sexuality as I possibly can. Um, And, um, and I've wondered on occasion if I'm, and, and other certain people are really striving to lay it out on the table and be truthful you mm. know, about it in a way that will hopefully be radical and then revolutionary and will, will um it, it, it that honesty will break down barriers and we'll all be happier because of it and maybe some people aren't obsessed with it obsessed i'm using air quotes sure because uh they were told they shouldn't and they're just repressing themselves but maybe i've been over obsessed on occasion because I was reacting against that old Mm. version of me I don't know if you have any thoughts on that we talked a little bit about truth I think when you interviewed me (laughs) yeah I think it's I think it's hard not to talk about art without talking about truth you know Mm -hmm. and I don't know I haven't I feel like this was a big conversation big thought when I was in grad school you know like that good art is truth telling regardless of whether it's fiction or nonfiction or whether it's visual or oral, Mm -hmm. like getting to the heart of something. But can you elaborate on like, um, what, what are your thoughts on like, you said that whether we're obsessed or not might be like, whether it's being repressed, but do you feel like, um, if it's not oppressed, then like by default, you are obsessed with it. Or is it just like, is there is a little bit nuance in that (laughs) yeah I don't know I mean I I do think that as speaking as someone who feels they repress themselves to the point of being unhealthy at Mm -hmm. one period of my life um 
it there was definitely a pendulum swing where once I started being honest and open it was like whoo we're gonna talk about this all the time and we're gonna like yeah yeah tear this apart whereas if if someone had this like perfect ideal childhood that didn't cause them to repress anything maybe they that they wouldn't need to talk about it so much (laughs) so yeah I don't I I don't know I can't answer that question yeah no Um, I, I I think it makes sense that like obsession in a way is part of healing because it's, uh-huh. it's the antidote for not the antidote. It's what happens when you you don't have to repress anymore. And then it, uh-huh. so if you've never needed healing around something, then that obsession doesn't build. I do wonder though. I mean, I remember, um, I remember in, in therapy in my twenties, I had this realization thanks to my therapist that part of why I'm so I'll use the word obsessed again with like connections between people, like maintaining connections with friends, with lovers, whatever it was because I saw that that connection is such a huge part of my self-worth. Like I'm worth connecting with, I'm worth staying connected to. So then Uh, if that connection disintegrates or, you know, for whatever reason, then I, I tie that to me being unworthy. And so I remember asking my therapist like then, but then like, if that goes away, then so does this thing that I really consider like a good and valuable part of who I am of like somebody that really cares about identities and relationships, does that go away as well? And, you know, with that, like knowing smile, my therapist talked about like, no, it just evolves, right? Like (laughs) It, it doesn't change it just like the nature of it changes so I yeah. do wonder if like you know for if for those people who who don't have trauma around their sexuality or their spirituality or whatever maybe it's still this like joyful curiosity based relationship you know or for those of us who had trauma but healed that relationship or that that fascination with these things can still stay strong it just it looks different because it's not based on the need to heal Mm. yeah yeah right on right on what projects are you currently working on i am somebody that always keeps way too many balls in the air so um my I have this blog and a podcast called Radical Soul and it's, and I struggle, I struggle to define it. Like it, I think I say something about how it's like news movements and musings on um, progressive spiritual identities and, and people that are, are centering justice and centering queerness in their, in their spiritual searches. Um, so that's a huge project that I I really hope is a life project. You know, I think a lot about like on being or um, the what used to be called brain pickings and now is the marginalian and like these things that like exist over a large period of time because they continue to um, be relevant to people. And I hope that that's what radical soul becomes. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also have, um, my agent is currently, I wrote a, a novel with my brother. It's a mystery rural noir thriller um, that 
I, I like to say is all about the impact of opioids and evangelicalism on small town Indiana. So we're hoping to find um, a publisher for that very soon. And then next up is my memoir, which is my journey of shame. Um, so I'm like halfway through it and <laughs> basically hoping a publisher will help fund writing the rest of it because it's just a ton of work. <laughs> oh, I hear you. I hear you. Writing can be so much work. Yeah. <laughs> so much work. Okay. I thought of another question for you. That's just, um, it's just been rattling around in my brain lately. You know how we have these mm. themes in our lives and you know, they, they just keep coming up in different ways for a while until we resolve them in some fashion. But this, I'm just wondering what your thoughts are on this. I think there's a really fine line between, in relationships, codependency mm. and its unhealthy side effects versus a healthy love. And in a healthy <clears throat> loving relationship of course you are giving to each other there's give and take you are relying on each other in different ways and yet it can so easily all of a sudden become imbalanced um sometimes because of finances because sometimes because of housing some you know it, or just our emotional need uh you know for ego gratification or whatever but what are your thoughts on what that line might be mm. um and you know how we can be our best healthiest self in a loving relationship <laughs> yeah right thanks <laughs> <laughs> that wasn't evil at all but <laughs> <laughs> right <laughs> I have a couple thoughts about it I had this had this conversation with a friend yesterday um, who, uh, we're both anxious attachers. Mm, yep. That yeah. Sense. I know what you, that means. Yeah. Sweet. Um, and so, you know, anytime we enter into this relationship, like we know we're going to be anxious about it. And, but I think that there's this, what I was telling my friend is that I think there's this lie or this myth that comes out of, um, the relationship and sex educator culture that we're supposed to enter into relationships like incredibly stable in order for these relationships to be healthy. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. I think that it's mm -hmm. really harmful or, or damaging to think that like, if we're anxious, emotional, scared, whatever, that that's, a bad thing or that like you know it it means that we still have I mean we always have work to do but like our brains when we're when we're really into somebody there's so much chemically that's happening you know that our hormones are going crazy and we're afraid because it's a new thing and we don't know if it's going to last and, and these, these disruptions can happen at any point in a relationship, you know, like that's part of being vulnerable with somebody is being afraid. And so by tamping down on these fears or saying that they're, they're not welcome or that they're unhealthy, 
what we're really saying is that our body and brain's natural reactions to things is is wrong. And mm-hmm. I think that's unhealthy, you know? So I guess to me, thinking about what that balancing act is, is like learning to trust mm-hmm. in our natural reactions and learning how to work with them as opposed to letting them control us in one way or another. Mm-hmm. Is that, mm-hmm. Does that yes. resonate? Yes, it does resonate. Yeah, and I've thought a lot about how you know, we can't survive alone. We yeah, physically right. can't do it. You have to have the help of other people. Um, and you have to have the help of the, not just other people, like your family, but the whole community mm-hmm. enables me to go to the store and buy flour and all of those things. Um, yeah, so it's like we do need each other. And yet, Yeah, it just can be hard to know the moment when we need to step away from a relationship because it's become codependent. Mm. Um, so something I've thought a lot about over the years. Yeah, thank you for sharing your thoughts. <laughs> have you have you read Polly Secure? Yes, yes, I have. Yeah, read. yeah. Okay. It. Yeah. She talks about I forget the author's name, but she talks about how um, attachment experts like the way that they set up healthy monogamous relationships to her sounds more like codependency which Mm -hmm. I thought was fascinating Uh uh-huh uh-huh yeah 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 I know yeah (laughs) (laughs) wait I I reckon there's definitely there's definitely something in our culture that it's we are like I think about like oh when somebody gets married there's a lot of encouraging them to be codependent yeah um, yeah right and um for myself I think it's time I think as a whole culture it's time to reevaluate some of those things in a new way totally um, yeah. not pushing polyamory it's not that polyamory yeah. is supposed no. to be better than monogamy right it's, no. no yeah yeah but just just all all structures of relationships and and for me I'm thinking about um because I'm currently monogamous, but um, it's the finances. It's the, how do you arrange the living situation in a way that's mm. fair and equitable? And um, and how do you support one another without it becoming imbalanced? So that, it, it, and, I, and I really do think that what I was fed as a kid, mm. the way relationships should be, was too restrictive I think it was repressive and caused a rebellion within me yeah time yeah yeah but then there's not other like I mean it's hard I think when our when our society is built on this very heteronormative idea of coupling and family Mm -hmm. then even when you want to try out new systems or methods like it's harder financially and it's harder um I mean it's just harder to survive so you know I read I read this book um Rest is Resistance recently by Trisha Hersey and she was talking about how part of resisting capitalism is imagining like creative creative ways of resisting um and 
thinking about how to apply it to the system or to the situation, it's like, how do you, how do you imagine creative ways of being in relationships and having family and like surviving that like slyly and almost manipulatively go against cultural norms and the systems that they're supporting, you know, and you, yeah. you just can't, you can't always do it outright because it's not possible, but there are, yeah. I think, creative ways of doing it, you know? Yeah. 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 And, and some of them are so small. Yeah. Sarah, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. so for example, I'm thinking of, and this sort of brings in a symbol in our culture that's big for me, but you know, diamond wedding rings mm -hmm. are the thing. Yeah. And, and this is one of my few soapbox I will stand up on. I'll say, we were sold this thing. We were sold this idea by a company that it right. still does child labor. And it's a, like, why? Um, I think most people just don't know, aren't aware of that. But why this continues to be the status symbol for marriage. And to give a, a brief history of it, it was in the 20s when the De Beer Mining Company decided to do this big ad campaign to promote diamonds as the stone that needed to be the engagement ring. And before that, most wedding rings didn't have any stones at all, or if they did, it could be any stone. Mm -hmm. And they said, no, it's got to be a diamond. And everybody bought it to the point yeah. where... I had read about this when I was a teenager. I said, I'm not ever buying a diamond ring. I don't want a diamond wedding ring. So when I did get married, I told my husband, Sean, don't get me that. And he got me an emerald. But then I had friends who said, oh, I thought it had to be a diamond. Like right. they were like, yeah. they were literally confused. Mm. But, I mean, I, th I actually think nowadays I'm seeing more and more people doing creative other other gemstones and different things with that symbol but um but it's just it's so small on one level it doesn't matter but it's like they're it's 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 like those sometimes the small things there's a lot of big things within the small thing <laughs> and it's important and I think that this is part of your work and what you do to question those norms not to say we're going to throw them away but let's examine them are they worthy of staying here are they not why did this even come about yeah I don't know if you have any thoughts or reactions to that and you could totally maybe you love diamonds and that's but I'm, I'm okay <laughs> with that but you know <laughs> no I, I'm totally with you I've never understood the whole diamond craze <laughs> yeah um, yeah yeah I think um I mean and that that's really the beauty of your book as well as like questioning questioning the symbols around you that you've held to be important as a way of tapping into your unconscious too, right? So there's both like questioning the influence that being raised in a certain culture, um, as well as what is inside of you that you're having a hard time accessing. So yeah, that makes perfect sense. Question mm -hmm. everything. <laughs> question, question everything, question authority. Yeah. I think I had a bumper sticker that said that. In the nice. Uh, yeah, right. Okay. So my last question for you, unless I just throw a few more hardballs at you, um, we'll see what happens. Yeah, please do. Uh, <laughs> uh, 
Uh, so I have just finished a book on symbolism, the alchemy of symbols. Um, what is your favorite symbol and why? Yeah, I think, I think right now it's the moon. And um, do you, are you a fan of the tarot deck at all? I, I'm i aware yeah. of the like, like basic symbols of it and stuff. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So tarot has become more and more important to me as I, I guess as, as my, so a few years ago, I uh, intentionally stepped away from Christianity and have been sort of floating around since then. Um, I, I took refuge as a Buddhist, but Buddhism isn't to me, oftentimes it it feels more like a philosophy or ideology than it does like a faith. Mm -hmm. Um, And as a way of maintaining this relationship with the divine or spirit um i i've really been drawn to tarot for a number of reasons i think one is that it's it seems to be one of the fewer harmful practices that one can gravitate to when you're trying to avoid appropriating other like indigenous traditions because it it just has really messy like roots that extends across like so many different cultures that it's yeah so I I wasn't aware of that yeah I guess I don't know the history of it really at all I've tried to I've tried to read about it and I get I mean I have a really hard time holding facts in my head so I'm not gonna I'm not gonna even try I just know that like it's it seems to be the sort of more acceptable thing to to use um that like you're not you're not appropriating a particular culture in doing so Interestingly, so my friend um, Venus, who I've interviewed on my podcast, talks about how like tarot for her is like an escalator to to the spirit world. Like it, it's just a way that it, it, it's like a language that you can easily tap in, but you can also just tap into your unconscious this way. Like it, mm-hmm. it's sort of the same conversation we had about symbology. It's like, are you trying to talk to something outside of yourself or are you trying to talk to yourself? either way it works (laughs) so where the moon fits in um in the major arcana i forget how many i think what there are 20 21 um major cards in the major arcana and there's this interesting progression that happens from zero to i think 21 um and it's this i'm stealing a lot of this from Lindsay mack who uh has the blog and major brand um tarot for the wild soul and she talks about how like there's like three lines of the tarot and the first line the first however many cards is really about learning understanding yourself and your ego and then the next line is all about moving beyond your ego and embracing a path or calling a relationship with things outside of you and then the third line is really like collaborating together and in this line there's the tower card which is this beautiful symbol of uh things that you've built up in your life like ideas or relationships or whatever that needs to fall for something else to grow in its place that's healthier for you. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. The tower gives way to the star, which is this symbol of hope 
that you know a better direction to head. And the star gives way to the moon, which is all about resting in the unknown. Because I think even when we see we have this hope for something better, it's not like that hope is static and always with us and always to the same amount of emotional safety. And then the moon gives way to the sun, which is like a brighter sense of clarity. And the sun gives way to the world, which is the finishing of the cycle. Like you've out of the tower has grown something better. You've evolved into this better thing, but then you just start over because it's this constant cycle of growth. <laughs> right. <laughs> So or the wheel, the wheel of samsara. Just, yeah. 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 <laughs> um, yeah I mean, yeah. and hopefully like it's sort of the reverse wheel. Like it's not, it, instead of being the wheel of suffering, it's the wheel of evolution. Like that you're, mm. you're being, you're yeah. learning. How, yeah. Who, who did I read <laughs> that had the, the idea that it's not necessarily just a wheel that's circling around. My, it's more like a spiral. Yeah. Rotating yeah. Up. I can't remember who gave me that idea. It's a spiralic but, tradition. Yeah. 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 So the moon to me is, has become this really important, I think as I've given up the, basically the roots of my faith in giving up Christianity, I gave up what I thought to be like the answer, right? Like that there was a way of seeing the world, a way of connecting to God and in, in leaving it behind, there's been this question of, well, then what do I have faith in? What do I believe in? And the moon has be, has stayed this really important symbol of trusting that even if I don't have these really strong um, static answers to any of these questions, that there's still something with me that's that feels loving, even if it's a, just a sense of self-love, um, but that it there's... I trust that there's good in the world and that good includes mm -hmm. me. So, yeah. Yes. And you are good. You are so oh, wonderful. Thanks. And, um, and yeah, and that was my last question for you. So, you know, I can end by saying, I'm so happy that we've reconnected and I love you so much. And oh, I'm looking you. forward to seeing <laughs> you more again in the future. And uh, thank you for sharing your thoughts with me on the podcast today and keep writing. <laughs> I know you will because you, you'll do it. It's yeah. compelling. Yes. Right. Any, any yeah. final thoughts? Yeah. No, I think I love, um, thank you again for having me. And uh, I, I think the beauty of this, like you're, you're finding a way of portraying your truth and living into it further through the visual arts. And I'm finding a way of living into my truth through writing. And so I guess I just hope that anybody listening find, like uses that truth, what they need to, the truth that they need to live out, that they find a creative mm -hmm. means of accessing it and showing it and being heartened by it. So yeah. Oh, I'm, I'm reminded of a, a quote by uh, Charlie Parker, the jazz musician. He said, if you don't live it, it won't come out your horn. Mm, something like that that's great you know? so yeah it's like it's it's gotta be gotta be lived totally yes. all right well thank you so much Jara. yeah I will talk to you soon friend <laughs> bye, bye. <laughs>
This concludes the Studio Alchemy podcast. May these thoughts and stories comfort and heal your spirit. May you be filled with inspiration. May you be like the lotus flower and build your home in the muddy water. May you find your voice.